Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. I know what you're thinking. It's Monday, and new episodes usually come out on a Thursday. That's because until the end of the year, this podcast is going twice weekly. Every Monday and Thursday, you'll find a new episode in all the usual places. I had so many podcasts recorded that I wanted to share them as soon as possible. So, in this episode, the first Monday episode, I'm talking to Rochelle Atala, about her speculative novel, The Pharmacist. Rochelle is a busy woman, and I had to grab a chat with her between the Edinburgh Festival, so she's in a cafe when we recorded. Rochelle is a Scottish-Egyptian novelist, short story writer and screenwriter based in Glasgow, and she previously worked as a community pharmacist for a decade. In this episode, we talk about how Rochelle's career as a pharmacist helped her create her main character, leaving gaps for the reader to fill in with their own imagination, and how her short story writing and screenwriting complement her novel writing. But first, here's Rochelle with an excerpt from The Pharmacist. I stared up at Canavan's bunk, making out its sunken shape in the blue nightlight glow, when the generators cut out, plunging the entire bunker into total darkness. The power cuts usually only lasted minutes, but knowing this didn't make it any easier. I gripped my blankets and tried to visualise something that could trick me into distraction. I thought about the huge shopping mall and multi-storey car park that sat directly above us. I'd treated myself to some lovely boyfriend-style jeans and eaten ramen noodles with Officer Holden while his wife was at work. He couldn't operate his chopsticks and I'd revelled in his having to ask for a fork. I so clearly remembered the feel of his hand gripping my thigh under the table. I shifted position. I could hear people breathing, quick and erratic, while a child cried out in the distance for her mother. I brought my hand up in front of my face, but I couldn't make it out. We had been told this particular bunker housed 0.2% of the city's population, the country's best minds huddled together. But in reality, it was mostly populated by politicians and bankers, the odd media mogul thrown in for good measure. They had had enough money and influence to protect themselves and their loved ones, but there was nothing particularly special or impressive about any of them. Where were the experts in science or academia? Could I assume that they were safe in another of the city's bunkers? 
We were a poor mix of a gene pool too. My mum's North African heritage within me must have been missed on admission, pale enough to slip through the net when combined with the gift of a Western surname. When I was little, I used to force my parents to put their arms next to each other. The contrast in their complexions fascinated me. My brother and I, a perfect blend of them both. Hi, Rochelle. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you about your brand new novel, The Pharmacist. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. So can you start by telling us what it's all about? So The Pharmacist is a, was a speculative, speculative kind of dystopian tale. Uh, it follows Wolf, who is the pharmacist living in a nuclear bunker. Uh, she spends her days kind of monotonously doling out medication to the, the other inhabitants while they wait for the outside world to heal. Um, and then when she is kind of introduced to the leader's rather kind of paranoid um, and reclusive polit- political leader, ND, um, their worlds start to collide and she is then forced to kind of consider what she's willing to do and uh, what she's willing to sacrifice for her, for her own personal gain. And, and I think it just opens up these kind of political and social questions about how we treat one another and what we do when we feel like the world's kind of closing in on us. Um, I was definitely, when I was writing it, I was very much inspired by kind of like the populist leaders that we kind of put into positions of power. So um, there's quite a lot of strands that the kind of the politics of the bunker um, matter, I would say, the politics of what we're kind of living through at the moment. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a bit about your kind of real world inspirations later. But I really wanted to start really with the beginning of your idea for this novel, because I saw an interview with you where you said you'd when you started to come up with this idea, your main character, Wolf, her voice just kind of came to you and you just started writing. But I wondered whether you could talk to us about where that initial seed of an idea came from. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I had no real desire to write a story about a bunker before this. It wasn't like I had a huge fascination. I obviously, I knew they existed, but I hadn't really um, been into any. And I also just kind of imagined them as these small little contained spaces. And then I was in Berlin in about 2016 with my husband and young son strapped to me. And we were in a museum and unbeknown to us, as we were paying our money from the museum, they went, oh, if you want to come back at two o'clock, um, we'll give you a tour of the bunker. <laughs> we were just kind of like, sorry, what? Um, I'm so sure enough, we went back. And then before we knew it, we were getting taken down, you know, like four flights of stairs past an underground car park. And then someone turned this big metal door and we stepped in as a group of maybe 20 people into a community-sized post-war nuclear bunker. And I was just like, I was completely consumed by this. As soon as I stepped in and it's dark and it's bleak and you kind of walk around and you see what they had planned for, the provisions they were willing to take. And it was really, for me, it was quite a captivating space. And then I then thought, well, there's so many societal questions that come from this, you know, who who gets chosen? You know, there's only a very small percentage of a population within the kind of vicinity that would fit into this bunker. So who's getting a place in here? And who do we still keep our kind of political hierarchies? And do we take them to the bunker? Um, and what are you willing to sacrifice, you know, from and leave the outside world? So that immediately came, my mind was in overdrive. Um, but I come from novel writing as a short story writer. So I think instinctively I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a short story. Um, and I started writing, when I got home, I started writing my notebook um, and I was going to call it The Politician's Daughter. And I couldn't stop. Like it was just pages and pages and pages. Um, and then I thought, oh, actually, maybe this is, maybe this is the novel that, <laughs> that I've been thinking about writing. And it was very instinctual. I kind of just let it leave from there. But uh, when I thought about it as a novel, 
I didn't think that the voice I'd started from when the short story was strong enough to, to kind of pull the full story along in novel form. So I went back to the drawing board and I, I kind of thought for a while. And before I knew it, I because I used to be a community pharmacist um, and I, up until that point, I very really wanted to talk about pharmacy. I thought it was just like best to kind of compartmentalise, you know, like who's interested in, in hearing me talk about pharmacy. Um, but then I, I think I just started. I thought, well, it could be a pharmacist that's in the bunker. Um, and as soon as I kind of landed on that, it was kind of a, an epiphany moment. And then Wolf's voice quite kind of confidently arrived. And then, yeah, that was it really. She just kind of pulled, pulled me along. And I wrote the first draft quite quickly. Um, it obviously needed a lot of work after that, but I think, you know, within six months I had a draft because I just couldn't stop. I was so kind of consumed by, by her voice and what she wanted to say. Um, yeah, <laughs> so that's how it came about. And I think there's that cliche phrase of, you know, write what you know. But do you think that it helped you writing a character that was a pharmacist because you've had that background? Because obviously with this story and with speculative fiction, you do a lot of world building. You have to work out the logic of what's happened and, and where they all are. So do you think using a career that you were familiar with helped you? I think I don't think I was aware of it at the time. I think on reflection massively because... I mean, I obviously you have to do research um, and I do like I like it when I've done the research for a piece of writing. I hate it at the time. You know, I'm one of those terrible writers that puts in like research later and then you come back to the next draft and you're like, oh, I haven't done that yet. Um, so I think I probably leaned on the idea of being a pharmacist because it was it was easy in the sense that I could just kind of keep the flow. Um, and obviously when I started writing about it, there was just all these little moments that um, I mean, it's all fiction, but the the moments that I can add to the novel, you know, bear some sort of resemblance to the experiences that I've had. And I just think, actually, there was all these lovely kind of human interactions that I must have just banked and never thought were, were kind of worthwhile putting on the page. And here I was writing this book. And they just kind of they just slotted in for me as a writer, like, quite naturally. Um, and then it wasn't until I was kind of at the editing stage, I realised the potential power that Wolf could have by, by being a pharmacist, you know, by being in control of the medication and having power over other people. Um, and I think although she perhaps doesn't realise the power she has at the start, by the end, she very much does. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting. And I suppose it was then I was kind of reflecting my own career as well and thinking, you know, there's an awful lot of responsibility that comes with being a pharmacist. Um, I, it did cause me quite a lot of anxiety when I used to practice because I was in fear of kind of making mistakes, you know, or hurting people. And it's easily done. I mean, mistakes happen all the time. Um, so I think that, yeah, I, whether I realised it or not, that there was probably a part of my career kind of being purged out of me onto the page. Um, and I suppose it's just, yeah, it's your first novel. You know, everyone's trying to tell you, write something that no one else can write. And so part of me was like, well, I don't think anyone could write this. You know, I think like, I, I mean, obviously people have written about bunkers before, but have they written about a pharmacist? No. So I'm going to give that <laughs> give that a go. And that it's just something different, I guess. And that, that's what I thought I could bring to the book um, as a debut novel. Yeah. And it works so well because it's a great way for Wolf to interact with a lot of characters and it's, I guess it makes the structure of your novel in a way easier because she's got her career, has she got her day-to-day, -day, the sort of drudgery of, of having mm. the same job every day. And like you said, it's quite, it makes her role surprisingly quite high stakes. You know, they're in an enclosed environment and everyone's got ailments. But if something happens, like I don't think it's giving too much away to say the first, one of the first scenes in, in the book is a character who swallows pieces of a monopoly board and then gets you know severely injured from it 
um, and your things that might be minor in our world suddenly become major in her world mm. and she mm-hmm. is one of the main people that has to deal with it yeah yeah and I don't think um I don't think she appreciates that <laughs> at the start and I don't think she particularly likes that um and I think I'm sure I mentioned uh, in the book you know there's a line where she talks about when someone's ill on an airplane and they go there a medical person on board and she goes well I, I'm not a doctor I'm not a nurse and I think like that's how I feel <laughs> you know in, in real life uh, and so I think I that feeling is is um I can relate to that yeah I, I think we were very different people at Ruth and I but I think moments like that of of yeah oh the, the stakes are high I have to help deal with this um, and that kind of causes anxiety I think come across and will and they probably come across <laughs> in me as well um yeah and I think there are there are lots of little moments where she just has to step in you know she does have to take responsibility and I don't think she would if she was in the outside world I think if she was able to avoid it she probably would one thing your novel does which is one of the main reasons why I absolutely loved it is that you left so much to the reader's imagination there's so much unsaid about what's happened to the outside world we it's kind of implied that it's potentially nuclear war but we never find out whether that's the case Mm. We don't know what's on the outside. We don't know whether everyone is dead. We don't know what's happened. And, um, you know, I think I can say that we don't find out what, what has happened. <laughs> um, did you enjoy that element of kind of teasing little bits of information, but leaving so much blank? And was it difficult for you to decide how much to give away? Um, well, firstly, yes, I, I love I love deciding what to share with the reader and whatnot. But I, I come, I think I mentioned this earlier, I come from short story writing. And I feel like with short story writing, the main thing you're always kind of drilled in to do is leave plenty of room for the reader. But there's always got to be space for interpretation and speculation. Um, and so it was a real natural instinct for me to think, well, I'm going to use that same principle in novel form. Um, it's also just the type of thing that I like to read. I like to read things that leave space for me and don't, you know, don't have to fill in all the blanks. Like, I, I get it, <laughs> you know, I'm there with you. Um, and I like to think of reading as a kind of partnership between the author and the reader. Um, you know, we're both bringing something to it. I'm offering you something and you're going to come away with an interpretation. Um, so yeah, all that, that very much interests me. Um, and so uh, it was it was a kind of natural decision to, to, I think that is how I write, that is my style. Um, but finding the balance, I think it's just, yeah, that's kind of pull and push game, isn't it, that comes in the editing. Um, and I, I think that was mostly from the editors being like, I think I need a little bit more here. And I would kind of go reluctantly, like, fine, <laughs> I'll give you it. I'll tease a little bit more there. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you if you're don't read short stories, then you maybe don't like um that there's lots of room left on the page. I certainly, I think we were saying earlier, that I've certainly had people be quite frustrated at some of the information that I chose to leave out. Um, but the other thing I felt was quite important was I wanted Wolf to be a first person narrator um, and I wanted you to be unreliable. So I think I very much wanted it to feel like you're, only, you're getting her version of things. They're not necessarily always right, but that's the only perception that you're getting. Um, because I just think that, we do that we do our own kind we're our own narrators unreliable narrators and we can very much easily filter what we say to one another and and the perception we try and project so I I really wanted that to come across with Wolf 
I think there's also this sense of some things are going to be really difficult for her to talk about. So she's only giving the information away that she feels comfortable with sharing. And, and I, I think from a human point of view, that's a really interesting place to come at from, from writing and from a character. Mm. I already know the answer to this because I've asked you before we started recording. But <laughs> did you have a clear idea of what's going on in the world and the elements of the story that you haven't given away? I I have been asked this quite a lot. And I, I'm not going to give a definitive answer because I don't hand on heart fully 100% know. My gut instinct is pro- probably that there has been nuclear war, I think. Um, but I think from Wolf's perspective, you need hope. So... Mm. I think it, even if, I mean, the world might be fine outside, who knows, but it may well have had um, kind of a nuclear disaster. But for her not to know is almost kind of a blessing for her to be able to tease this idea of herself. That actually, maybe, maybe they are, everyone above ground is fine. Maybe her loved ones are surviving and she's t- taking the punishment. You know, they, there is this kind of moment where they consider is the worst of, is the worst of society and humanity in this bunker? Um, because, you know, all of them, apart from the children perhaps all of them are flawed in some way um Mm. as a society (laughs) um so yeah i I may maybe is is the very vague gray answer that i'm willing to give on that (laughs) what about kind of life before the bunker because we do get some information about wolf's relationships her family her ex-partner and the kind of events that led up to her going into the bunker Mm. was there had you done a lot more work in terms of kind of fleshing out that element of it and the kind of the lead up to the bunker and then just not included it or was that something that you'd only done kind of uh like a small amount of work on because you knew it wasn't going to be included I think I did a lot of backstory thinking and jotting down but I always thought it was just for me um I didn't ever plan on giving people much backstory I'm not a massive fan of backstory generally um and again, maybe that comes from being a short story writer and you just don't really have the economy to go into too much backstory. Um, but I also thought that I just wanted to give the reader the absolute minimum that they needed to go with the story and, and for them to fill in the blanks. Um, and so I think when I came to the book, I had a very clear idea in my own mind of, you know, life for a week beforehand. But I was very conscious that I only wanted to give, again, kind of in that sense of what she comfortable kind of divulging to herself or to, you know, to us as a reader. Um, so yeah and again I think that's probably some people would criticize the lack of backstory some people are like I want to know what happened before but when I started writing the book I I knew very like the first chapter has, has probably is the chapter that's changed the least in the entire draft so I knew that it was going to open with um, um seeing this man lying on the ground who had eaten monopoly pieces um and I Again, I'm really keen on this kind of idea when you're telling stories or thinking about stories, you know, you, you start as late as possible and you take the first exit out. Um, and I just, I wanted the reader to feel like, oh, you know, this world already exists and we're actually just entering it now, but this is a familiar role to everybody else. Um, because I, I tried to write a novel before this one, which was contemporary and not dystopian. And I had, I remember I had a mentor through the Scottish Book Trust for it. And I'd written like 12 pages of this like really beautiful backstory to her. <laughs> and my mentor was like, where does the story start? And I was like, oh, what do you mean? On page one right here. And she's like, no, but I, I mean, I know a lot about her, but what's the story about? And I remember just thinking like, ah, that, that was like one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given. Like, where do you want your story to start? Where do you want your reader to pick up from? Um, and I think because I wanted it to feel really claustrophobic and I wanted it to, to move quickly, you know, I wanted it to, to feel like lightning. Um, 
sometimes I think backstory can be a hindrance and it kind of pulls you out. So yeah. For, for rightly or wrongly, that's what I want. <laughs> that's what I, I, love, I, I love the way you did it because you like you say you're you're in there with Wolf and I felt I I trusted you as a writer to give me the information when I needed it and I mm-hmm. knew that eventually I would find out information but you're like you said there's no moments where we go and now it's a flashback and now we have <laughs> a chapter about her life before the bunker we only get the information when it's when it fits and I love that because you're there in the bunker the whole time that probably adds to the reader's feeling of claustrophobia with your characters and I think it works so well and I never I mean I mentioned to you before we started recording I love novels where there's enough space for the reader to Mm. their own perspective and for them to fill in the, the gaps themselves and your novel does it so well because I didn't feel unsatisfied because I feel like I had a full picture of what was going on and her life beforehand even if you hadn't necessarily told me about it. So I think yeah. it worked so well. I wanted to touch on, you mentioned the the novels in first person perspective and obviously from Wolf's perspective. She, like you mentioned, alongside many other characters is incredibly flawed, does some quite morally ambiguous things, particularly towards the end. Mm. Um, and do you think using first person helped make her perhaps more empathetic or do you think, it was something you used because you wanted the reader to just almost accept the world you were you were portraying? I think, I mean, a bit of both, to be honest. I think when I started writing it, yes, it was, I wanted the reader to accept that this was the world and we're seeing it through her eyes. Um, but as I continued to write, I realised, I mean, I'm very fond of Wolf, um, but I realised actually, if you weren't seeing the story from her perspective, I don't think you would empathize with her. I mean, she could easily be a bad. She could easily be a baddie in another story. You know, seeing yeah, someone else dies. And I again, I, I love that kind of moral ambiguity of mm-hmm. of characters. Um, and I think flawed characters is really interesting to read about and write about. I mean, nobody wants nobody wants to read a story about someone that just behaves perfectly all, all the time. You know. Um, so I think flawed characters are just really interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I would 100% think that if it, the story had not been told from Wolf's perspective, I think some people would definitely struggle to empathise with her. Mm. Um, and I suppose when you tell it in first person as closely as you do with Wolf, it gives you, um, I mean, I've had some readers say that like, you feel you're in her mind, you know, you're with her the whole time. And I think when it's set in that environment, you, you need something like that. You need to be, you need to have someone that, yes, obviously there are certain things they don't want to talk about and they might not confess that, but the things they are talking about are very confessional. You know, like nothing is kind of held back, you know, her bowel movements and, you know, the way she's treated other people in her life. I think, um, yeah, I think that felt really human to me um, because we are, we're all flawed. We're hopefully not as flawed as, as Wolf and some of the other characters, but we are flawed human beings. And I think we need to kind of acknowledge that. And I guess when they're in an environment like that, the flaws come to the surface a bit more because they are in such an extreme environment. Exactly. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of psychology of your characters um, because we've got Wolf and we've also another character that I think is worth talking about is your main leader which is uh, a character called ND mm-hmm. and I mean all your characters I think are so interesting and complex but ND is is uh, a very unusual character and I can really feel and I, I know you've spoken about it briefly earlier the influences from the real world 
to help build yeah. you as a, as a character. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm assuming uh, the influences may have been Trump, may have been Boris Johnson. <laughs> so give us a bit of a background on, on his psychology, really. Uh, yeah, I mean, so what I... I started writing this um, 2018 into 2019, and yes, uh, Donald Trump was in power. And I am one of those people that is a worrier. So, you know, I lie awake at night, probably reading the wrong articles just before you go to bed, and then lie awake thinking, what's happening to the world? And, you know, I, I have two young children, and I just, I'm kind of constantly worrying about, you know, the world that we're leaving for them. Um, and yeah, Donald Trump, I just, I couldn't believe, I mean, it's the t- it's the age-old tale of how someone like him gets into power. It's not as if it's new, it's just kind of history repeating itself. But I couldn't believe we had, people had chosen to vote someone like him in, who was clearly so self-interested. He doesn't actually care about people, just wants division because it suits his agenda. Um, and I think around the time, it was also when there was the discussions with like North Korea and nuclear, you know, nuclear weapons. And it just really struck me that actually we put these people into positions of power they make decisions that essentially affect all of us, but they never pay for the consequences. Um, and so very much, I think, because I felt out, like I couldn't control that situation. I think it was kind of cathartic for me to try and explore that in fiction. Um, it almost felt like my way, my way of helping kind of um, articulate my own worries and thoughts on the page. Um, and so, yeah, the first draft was very much written, not just with Donald Trump, but yeah, I mean, kind of populist leaders who are there to, 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 to divide for their own benefit and um, who are happy to put people in danger essentially um, and but I think also the fact that we have these weapons like nuclear weapons for example that we have the potential for mutual destruction I'm just like I just think that's mind-blowing that we've got to a place where we're all like I've got mine and you've got yours but because of each got them will not fire and then obviously with like the Ukraine and Russia you know, all these, all these um, issues have always been bubbling away and kind of, they kind of pop up and everyone goes, oh my goodness, you know, what, what will happen? Um, so that was that very much the forefront. And I kind of stand by the philosophy that I think you should be writing about what scares you. So at the time when I was writing this, that was very much on my mind. Um, and then I finished the draft and I started editing it and then Boris Johnson <laughs> came into power and I thought, this is, Perfect timing. Yeah. <laughs> this is just the gift that keeps on giving. Um, and um, yeah, and I just thought, I mean, I'm on Twitter quite a lot and I follow politics quite a lot. So I felt quite heavily involved, but I, I think... I'm not someone that's great at debating. You know, I wouldn't go on to like question time and kind of try and voice my my opinions. Um, and I'm not wanting to force any political opinion on somebody. I just thought this was this was my way of being able to articulate myself about politics and what worries me about politics. Um, so I think Indies ended up being a mash of a lot of the political leaders that we had kind of come across. Um, particularly in the kind of last five five to ten years, and I don't think. I mean, I tried, to, I didn't want to just like mimic one person, but I think, yeah, there's a mass of them all. Um, yeah, I mean, reading it, I don't read it and think, oh, that's Trump. Like, yeah, uh-huh. he feels very much like his own character. He's, uh-huh. he is not, um, he doesn't feel like an idiot. <laughs> so, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, he's not, and he's actually very charismatic, I think, is ND. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's, not, it's not like you're trying to do your own version of Trump. He does very much yeah. feel like his own character. I think it's more, I mean, did you, I don't know, did, I guess it's probably you absorb stuff just through watching the news and things. Did you kind of read any kind of interviews with Trump and Johnson and any other leaders to kind of almost 
get into his head like how did you manage to do that not really I didn't I didn't want to get too close to their particular voices so I just I kind of had a notebook and anything that bothered me that was happening in the world at that time and how they were handling it I would kind of think oh well you know and quite often none of it surprised me I'd be like oh that, that's quite typical so I suppose I just wanted to have this kind of vague projection and put on to ND and, and the idea of like how something like that comes into power and how they can contain you know continue to fall onto that power and the fact that you know they're willing to change laws around them to, to suit them I think that's but again I don't think any of that is new I think people have been doing that in politics for generations before I think we're just at quite a pivotal point again um but I think with ND as a leader I very much wanted him to be yes obviously he's, he's a populist leader and I've, I've definitely borrowed things from people that exist but yeah I wanted him to be his own person and I, what I was really interested in with ND was also showing someone that can flip from so being very charismatic and actually can be quite nice and caring and offer you lovely things to being someone that you know click of the fingers could be very very cruel um because I do think there's I'm very interested in how humans treat one another and actually how cruelty can come quite easily to us especially with like people that we like and so I think I wanted there to be that feel of he just didn't know what he was capable of doing um and I think that sometimes that takes wolf by surprise um, uh, until the end so yeah yeah <laughs> and speaking of kind of timings it was also I'm guessing during the pandemic you started doing <laughs> um where we many of us were inside a lot of the time and had kind of restrictive lives so I guess in a way that must have helped you build that very claustrophobic atmosphere in your novel so I mean so I I'd obviously I'd sold the book just before the pandemic and actually to the point where I thought oh my goodness are, they, are the publishers gonna like take the contract back does anybody mourn a novel about a pharmacist stuck in a bunker when we're about to just enter our own kind of little bunkers of the pandemic um I think the pandemic I mean I didn't want to live through a pandemic but the pandemic helped me in the sense that I felt I think before the pandemic came along, I was maybe asking the reader to really take a leap of faith that this could happen. Mm. Uh, it felt like it could very much happen to me. Like I think with speculative fiction that I'm writing, I'm, I, I'm interested in the idea of, okay, it doesn't, it hasn't happened, but it could happen. This could be a real world that I've created. And I think the pandemic made people go, oh, actually things we've taken for granted could just disappear overnight. You know, the things, the society that we assumed and how it works um could vanish and I'm sure I can't remember who said it but I'm, there is that saying if you're only seven meals away from anarchy and I think that that's really true and actually you know situations can change like lightning um and I think the pandemic helped people as a society to realize that so I think I probably got people on board so when they started reading the pharmacist they were like oh oh okay some people thought it was like a pandemic novel and I'm like well no I, I wrote it before yeah. the pandemic so I think there was obviously a lot of parallels that people found interesting or uncomfortable mm. and things they could relate to even more because they'd had to live through kind of extreme circumstances themselves but um yeah I mean even going through the editing process I'd send a draft back to my editors and then the copy editor and they were they were kind of like are you predicting the future you know like are you <laughs> and I, I think just the world we live in you just never know what could happen and so I think, I think, I think yeah. you're right in a way I think it's almost it's perhaps it's even more believable now we've gone we've sort of got gone through um lockdown and things we can see these things mm. you know, hopefully not happening but it feels like it could happen and I think it's a lot easier to imagine I think mm. like you, I, I've enjoyed speculative fiction for a long time but 
I, I think everyone said it when we were going through the early days of lockdown, like it does feel like we're living in, you know, Station Eleven or like a yeah. movie. So yeah, and I think especially at the beginning, because nobody knew like what was going to happen, and so you are just living in your houses, and then you just because this normal world that you had is it being very quickly taken away from you. You then think, is is this it now? Is this what life is going to be like? And we just didn't know. We just didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and even now, I mean, you know, the pandemic is still here. Um, we're just living in a different world and and I think oh, yes some form of normality has returned but the the exact carbon copy of the world before the pandemic that has that has gone I don't know if we'll ever get back to that even if it's just a, a, a shift in thoughts and how we perceive things um, and I think that all lends itself very well to speculative fiction yeah. yeah I mean speculative fiction is kind of trying to yeah imagine worlds that are maybe not that far away from the worlds we live in and so when those two collide it can be quite, it can be quite uncomfortable um as my editors, yeah, keep, <laughs> keep telling me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I want to move on to a happier note now and <laughs> touch on your writing career kind of so far and in general because you're not only just an author you are a screenwriter as well and you're a very successful screenwriter so Mm -hmm. I wondered whether you could talk to us a little bit about how those writing roles work together and how do you keep yourself kind of creatively nourished because if you're having to come up with ideas for novels short stories and uh, screenplays you must either have loads of ideas or have (laughs) kind of ways of tapping into those uh, nuggets of and seeds of ideas that's an excellent question and you're catching me at a moment where I'm like I think I, I do probably need to take a break soon and fill up <laughs> fill up the well and um, I 
I mean, I probably loved films before I got into novel writing. So as a child, it was kind of films were my go-to. I wasn't actually a big reader until I got into my 20s and I kind of fell into writing classes as a hobby and then started to understand what was good literature and like the types of things that I could be reading and enjoying. Um, but I, I think I'm just quite a pragmatic person. So I started with the short story form and I loved that. I'm still really passionate about that. And then when the time came, it felt like I was ready to try and learn and understand how you can move into novel. Um, and then there was the opportunity to, um, I think there was a course running in Glasgow. They were looking for writers who, not just Glasgow, in Scotland, uh, who were writing in other disciplines who were interested in screenwriting. And so at that point I thought, well, actually I am interested in screenwriting and film. So maybe this is something that I can think about. Um, so I, I started to learn screenwriting a few years ago, um, but I'm at that I'm at this position now where I've just written my first feature and we're trying to kind of get that funded. And I think, oh, actually, trying to establish yourself as an author and a screenwriter at the same time, I would not, I would not <laughs> recommend at all. It's very, very stressful. Um, but then I, I just think, well, I love storytelling. I love understanding story and actually I, I come to this kind of conclusion that I think there are some you know some stories need to be told a certain way and I'm getting better at saying well, I've got the seed of an idea what's the best way to tell that is it a short story is it a novel is it is it for a screen so um I love I love the diversity um, and I think I've learned there's definite things I take from each discipline that I think makes the pieces of writing stronger the main thing for me as a prose writer before I started screenwriting was that I never planned anything. Like I was very much, I'd have the, I, I'd have like seed of an idea and I would try and kind of think about the, the basic little points that I might want to meet or, you know, imagine how it's going to end. But I never wanted to be too specific. So I always think it's good to have room to just kind of go off on a tangent if the tangent feels right. Um, but I've discovered in screenwriting that's just really, really difficult to do. And actually, especially if you're trying to get funded your, your work you need to show your producers and the commissioners that actually you can put down on paper an outline of a very clear story before you get to script so that's something I've, I very much grappled with um, now that I'm used to it I can see the I can see the benefit of having a kind of 10 page outline or a 30 page treatment and in that respect it's I probably thought actually my my pros could do with more planning because it would probably save a lot of rewrites um, if you had a clearer idea of where you wanted to go with your novels so I think like things like that are interesting just the, pra the practice is different but take the positives from each and kind of merge them together um what I love about screenwriting is it's just really collaborative as well I think but the novel we were talking about this earlier the pressure that you feel and the anxiety before this thing comes into the world because it's your baby and you you're your, your creator and you know yes you have editors but ultimately the final say is with you if you tell the story and I think the screenwriting the pressure's off a little bit because as long as you've written a good script you don't have to have you hand it over um, and I think the dynamics are different because then all of a sudden you, you're just hoping you've got the right director you know can you trust the director um, to bring this story to life and I've, I've we had a I wrote a short film that got commissioned by the BFI a few years ago and actually that was a really really wonderful process um, and so that kind of gave me faith that actually as long as you're working with the right people you can bring that story to life in a, in a completely different way than you could with them um, with writing an novel or a short story um, I don't have I feel like I don't have great wisdom except that I just work <laughs> I work all the time I mean I'm probably a bit of a uh, workaholic um, but yeah just I just I have a notebook uh, that I write the seed of an idea down and um, I'll just kind of go through that every so often because more so with uh, film and TV, 
they do expect you like oh can we have a meeting and they're like what well, so what are you thinking of you just have, have kind of quick fire ideas um so that's interesting because i've never worked like that before whereas with, with with short stories and novels i've always just let things percolate until i was ready to kind of put them on paper um so yeah i'm learning it's like a work in progress um but i think you know it's a hard it's a hard life being a writer and if you can tell stories in different ways and that's got to be a good thing and but it also for me i feel like I'm starting to build a kind of sustainable writing career in through these different forms. Mm. I'm asking you for a very selfish reason because I've <laughs> said this on a podcast before. I'm a writer that I really struggle with ideas. I'm not someone that has 500 ideas and just can't get them down quick enough. Like it takes me ages to come up with a really good idea and and one that I want to spend time with. And and you know yourself when you, when you've got an idea and you're writing a novel, it takes you months mm. to write it, and then you've got to yeah. read. 100 times so you know you've got to really love it and uh basically my my re one of my reasons for doing the podcast and was selfish really is that I'm hoping that one day someone's (laughs) going to give me this nugget of advice it's going to change my writing career (laughs) you're like "Uh aha where is it Uh, Michelle where's this nugget of advice (laughs) yeah I don't have it I don't have a a magic uh, wand um but it'll be in there do you know what I think I mean sometimes I think sometimes I think sometimes when you're in your head going, I need an idea, I need an idea, that is the time where you have none. Exactly. The time yeah. where you take a break and you just watch a load of TV and read a load of books that things come to you. And I think sometimes it's the pressure of having an idea that makes you devoid. Uh, yeah, it. completely. I think there's nothing worse for creativity than pressure or someone kind of demanding you, you deliver something. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I look back to the last year, I, I haven't written anything new in a long time. I've been so busy fleshing out, you know, whether it's novel edits or an outline for a film that I that I maybe had the idea for two or three years ago. And so then sometimes I think, when was the last time I actually sat down and wrote something new? And I would like to think that I will get, I think I need to work on my balance as well of like when I'm working and when I'm off. Because I don't think writers are ever off. I think you're off, but you're still, whether you realise it or not, you're kind of thinking or calculating um, ideas. But yeah, I think the, the pressure, I totally agree, is something, it's just a buzzkill. It doesn't help creativity whatsoever. And I quite often find that I could, you know, I'll see something and I won't immediate, immediately think, oh, that's what I want to write about. But it, there'll be something in, the, in my head and it could be a couple of years later. And then I think, no, actually, that, that was really interesting. That stayed with me and that kind of slots in. It's all kind of random and, yeah, moments of kind of sparks that, that, <laughs> that you go, oh, actually, I must, I must sit down and, and write something like that um I guess we're yeah we almost come at it from from different ways I guess whatever works for you I suppose um because did what was your initial seed for the season I it started as a poem in 2014 and then like you I started writing a short story and then I was like this is too big for a short story it's not there's too much world to fit into a short story um and then I didn't really want to write a novel because I just thought it was too much work. <laughs> Effort. <laughs> and, uh, I had a conversation with a, a writing tutor at, at university when I was doing my MA and they were like, give it a go, like, you know, give it a try. And, yeah. and, and that's kind and of... here we are. <laughs> yeah, and here we are, yeah. However many years later. <laughs> yeah, but I think especially at the start... Um, it is daunting you know this is a you're taking on a huge commitment this is a relationship you're kind of yeah. taking on and you hope it works especially with your first novel you're, you don't really know you're just kind of taking a leap of faith um, 
And I think what it's taught me is just that, you know, perseverance, you've got it within you to persevere. And even if it, even if the book hadn't got published, the fact that it got finished, you know, that you wrote this piece of, of work that's massive, um, I think is an achievement in itself. And it's almost like an emotional kind of hurdle. If you can get over that, you're like, oh, what else can I do? Yeah, I yeah. That? yeah. I think having, having, I don't know whether you feel the same, but having written one, it makes you think, well, okay, I did it once. And although it was difficult, I had to do it so it does mean it's it's possible to do it again (laughs) you can do it again yeah (laughs) so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to get your agent and your book deal yeah uh so I um so my agent's Catherine Summerhays at Curtis Brown um which is a brilliant agent I came about getting my agent because I had won a Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award uh, and four short stories and I think I'd sent her some work and maybe, maybe I'd even sent her an extract of the first novel that I tried to write it was very encouraging about my racing but didn't feel like she was passionate about the story and I think that's really common I think that's a, a big hurdle that people have to overcome you agents can love love your writing but can they sell the story and if they can't then you know it's not going to work um, and then I basically started writing pharmacist and I, I I was on a writing retreat with another writer who had the same agent as me and she read the first chapter and said oh actually when you're finished let me speak to our, our now agents because I think this would be really up her street and I think it just it saved me going into the slush pile and waiting however long um to to find if to find out if she liked it or not and then actually getting that connection was super helpful and my agent read it really quickly and then things just happened like that yes I, I signed with my agent very quickly um but from signing to getting the book deal took a couple of years because my main issue was I didn't know how to finish the novel. <laughs> and I think there is that real risk because you've set it in a contained world, you could easily write yourself into a corner. And so for a long time, we kind of fleshed out like what was it I wanted to achieve by the end? What was the, the real arc of the story for me? Um, and it, yeah, it took me, I think I had the voice really early on, but to get to the finished, the the manuscript that we actually sold that yet yeah, probably took another two years of my agent's been really patient um but I think also my, my life I was a bit, I was having another child I was trying to get screenwriting off the go so I think you have to kind of you know not give yourself too hard a time things happen at the right time I think I like to think that anyway I don't know if that's true um so that's how it that's how it came to be and then actually I don't know how you feel but when I got the publishing deal I was like job done and then your your first round of edits come back and you're like oh I thought I, I thought I was done I thought like and then I was like it's, it's stunning we love it so much and then you get the notes and you're like do you do you, do you like it um so that again is just another hurdle yeah that was something I hadn't anticipated I actually quite liked doing the edits um but yeah, every step is a learning curve. I don't know if you feel the same <laughs> or not. Yeah. So I wondered whether you could maybe give us a couple of comparison novels to The Pharmacist for readers who mm. are interested in picking up. So novels that you think you could compare it to. I know people hate this question because it's me asking them to be really arrogant, but I'd love us to <laughs> uh, talk about a couple of novels that you think are similar. I mean, I would, I would not say that my book is anywhere near as good, but I think, you know, I took a lot of inspiration from books like The Power, uh, Naomi Alderman and uh, Handmaid's Tale, of course, Station Eleven. 
and um, so and my favorite little nugget of information is that actually the designer who did the cover of my book did the cover for the power and some of oh, wow. mark atwood's covers and he also did the station 11 cover actually for the uk so i i think i mean i'm not not I'm, i feel really like i can't i can't compare them to that because they're all amazing um but i think it's that kind of market that mad publishers are trying to to reach so if you like books like that and you like dystopian tales uh, or speculative ideas then yeah maybe you would pick it up and, and yeah. let me know what you think um I mean, and then I've yeah. been recommending it to everyone that I know oh. <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> and then I mean I, I don't know if I'll write speculative forever but my second novel is coming out next year and that's also speculative so yeah so that was my final question could you tell us a little bit about oh. the second novel yeah, so the second novel is called uh, Thirsty Animals, um, and it is about it's set on a livestock farm near the Scotland England border, and it is about it's about climate, so it's really about water shortages and how we as a society behave when water has become a scarce and sacred commodity. Um, so there's definite kind of parallels and themes to the pharmacist, uh, but this one was quite interesting because I got the free world <laughs> to kind of roam. No one was stuck in a bunker this time. Um, told from a younger perspective, someone that's 21, so it's kind of that generation that's taking on a lot of the problems eh, that we're leaving behind in the climate. Um, and yeah, so I'm interested, I'll be interested to see what, what people make of it. I, I like it now, but I hated writing the second novel. Like it was that difficult second album. Um, and I've actually just, I'm about to submit my copy at its back. So I think we're kind of on the finish line. It's, it's done and I can only tweak it from here on in. Um, and I think again, what we're saying about if you've done it once, you can do it again. There was something really like just relaxing about being like, I, I got there, you know, because I, I, I can't express to you how difficult <laughs> I found writing the second novel. I don't know if that's just the timing because you have finished, I'd finished the first one. I was waiting on it coming out and then I'm now working on the second one. And you, and you just kind of lose confidence as well. I think I was worried about what people were going to say about the first one. So you do, you kind of put yourself through the, the mill just thinking like can I do it again will people like it if they don't like the first one you know will they, will they like the second and I think you've just kind of got to put those those kind of scary thoughts to the back of your head because you can do it you know if you've done it once you can do it again well thank you so much for joining me today <laughs> Rochelle I really enjoyed chatting to you about the pharmacist and very looking forward to reading Thirsty Animals as well so thank you oh thank you so much Chloe it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you that was Rochelle Atala talking about her speculative novel The Pharmacist which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.